So our next presenter is uh, Tessa Hammond. She's a regional clinical manager for the American Medical Technologies. Um, she is responsible for oversight and management of the clinical specialists as well as assisting with business development for the Central Mountain region. Uh, she had a little problem getting here today because there was too many tornadoes in Denver, of all places. Uh, but she's here. Um, she also serves on the AMT Speakers Bureau, creating and providing various educational activities to advance wound care knowledge. Um, she received her master's in physical therapy in 2000 from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center as a physical therapist. She has practiced in the outpatient setting, acute care, and long-term care. Her clinical specialties reside within debridement and wound management. Tessa is a certified wound specialist by the American Academy of Wound Management and a fellow of the American College of Certified Wound Specialists. Uh, let's uh, invite her to our meeting. All right. Everybody hear me all right? Okay, fantastic. Well, I love dermatology and I love the skin. I think the skin is just amazing. Um, it's, I mean, it's crazy. It's the largest organ of the body. And it can tell you, it can give you clues as to what's going on with all the other organs in the body. So it's just, it's fascinating to me. But I'm not here to talk about the skin. I'm here to talk about all the different wound care options that are out there um, with a big focus on, on uh, dressings, things that you can use to cover your wounds. So this first slide, I just am required to say this. It's our disclaimer. Um, basically, all the information presented herein is provided for educational and informational purposes only. It is for the attendees' general knowledge and is not a substitute for legal or medical advice. Although every effort has been made to provide accurate information herein, laws change frequently and vary from state to state. The material provided herein is not comprehensive for all legal or medical developments and may contain errors or omissions. If you need advice regarding a specific medical or legal situation, please contact a medical or legal professional. Gordian Medical, Inc., doing business as American Medical Technologies, shall not be liable for any errors or admissions in this information. So bear with me for that. That's just something that we're required to say with all of our presentations. So um, the objectives for today's program are to review the dressing considerations for optimal wound healing and then really get into all the different dressing categories and understand the different advantages and disadvantages of the different dressings, and then recognize the appropriate selection, dressing selection based on the wound bed presentation. So optimal wound healing occurs when the wound patient and dressing um, factors are all considered and addressed. So your wound-related factors are going to be those factors related to the etiology of the wound, the severity of the wound, the wound environment, as well as um, the anatomical location of the wound and the presence or absence of any infection. Then the patient-related factors are going to be their vascular status, their nutritional status, as well as any or oral medications that they might be on. And then there are the dressing-relating factors. Those factors are going to be the availability of the dressings, the durability, the cost associated with it, and then also the characteristics of what the dressings do for the wound. Then with over, there are over 6,000 products out there. And so with that many products, sometimes it can be difficult to know which ones to choose for optimal wound healing. So things to consider when selecting a dressing are going to be based on what you need that dressing to do. Do you need it to 
maintain a moist wound environment for that wound bed to promote that granulation tissue proliferation? Do you need it to debride any necrotic tissue that are there? And then you also want that dressing to be atraumatic upon removal and provide a bacterial barrier. Um, other things you need to consider are, like I said earlier, the ulcer location, the cost effectiveness of the dressing. You need to, be able, you need to know when it's appropriate to use the different dressing, because otherwise it may not achieve the outcomes that you want. And then also if the patient has any sensitivities. So when considering the dressing to choose, you want to ask yourself first, is it clean and infection-free? Then you also want to ask yourself, is it dry or is it wet? These two questions are going to help, you, help guide you in choosing the optimal dressing. Then there's the cost effectiveness that we talked about earlier, of the dis different products, um, as well as the usage. You always want to be sure to use the products based on the, manufacturing, the manufacturer's instructions. Um, because if you don't, sometimes the products, when not used appropriately, can dehydrate a wound, can macerate the peri-wound tissue, can also cause a granuloma. It can uh, be detrimental to the healthy, intact peri-wound or the granulation tissue. So you want to definitely read the manufacturer's instructions for all the dressings. So just a list of a little mnemonic measures for what to think about as you're choosing your dressing. Like I said, you want to minimize trauma to the wound bed. You want to eliminate any dead space that might be there. Assess and manage the exudate. You want to choose something that's going to support the body's tissue defense system. Also use, recommend to the, your patients to use a non-toxic wound cleanser. You want to remove any infection, debris, or necrotic tissue in the wound. And then you want to provide my, uh, environmental maintenance. You want to provide some sort of thermal insulation that's going to promote a moist wound bed. And then you want to protect that surrounding tissue from injury and from bacteria. So all the products that, or most all the products that I'm going to talk about um, are all advanced wound care products. And so I want to just touch on the advantages of using advanced wound care products, and then we're going to get into the meat of the presentation, which is going to be talking about each and every one of those products. So really, moist wound healing is now considered the standard of care. Um, and it's basically because it enables the body to heal at peak efficiency, and it allows for improved epithelial migration, which Dr. Kursik referred to earlier. You know, you, when you get that scab, and I bet all of you are all scab pickers, because I know I'm a big, oops, scab picker, but in using the moist wound healing, tech, uh, moist wound healing, you don't allow that scab to develop, and you, you get faster wound healing. Um, but there are, there are times when moist wound healing is not, is not what you want to do. It's not going to be the, uh, the dressing of choice, and that's just because if you've got a, a patient that has arterial insufficiency and do not have the ability to heal, and they've got a dry, stable heal ulcer, you want to leave that alone because they have no ability to heal that wound. And then for, the, for a patient that has dry gangrene, we all know that they don't have the ability to heal as well, and so you want to leave that stable because eventually that gangrene will auto-amputate and fall off if you provide a moist wound dressing, then you're going to open it up to wet gangrene, to infection, to sepsis, and eventual patient demise. Then, it's, then you also want to take into consideration the patient status and their wishes. Um, I see a lot of hospice patients, and so with those kind of patients, your goal may not be to heal that wound, or you've got a patient that 
um, has peripheral vascular disease and no blood supply to the area. So again, your goal may not be to heal the wound. So also with moist wound healing, you achieve decreased edema. Um, moist wound healing will help soften that eschar through autolytic debridement. Um, it'll also create an environment near physiological temperature, which is going to optimize the phagocytosis. And then it's going to exclude that environmental bacteria. So all of these processes and outcomes occur when using moisture retentive dressings, which we'll talk about. Um, and it's when you use those different dressings at the right time. Again, because I mentioned earlier, so if you don't use it appropriately, you may not achieve these goals. Then advanced wound care products also. All the products that I'll be talking about next, um, most of them are all atraumatic upon removal. They help preserve the granulation tissue and lead to more rapid healing. Um, they also can help re reduce friction and shear and can be waterproof. Um, and then lastly, these dressings can lend themselves to better cosmetic results because, because of the enhanced epithelial migration that they promote. So the other thing that advanced wound care dressings provide is a bacteria barrier. It's inherently provided with the semi-occlusive to occlusive dressings. And so studies have shown that bacteria can penetrate 64 layers of gauze 4x4s. Four and then if those gauze are moistened, it can penetrate more. And so the use of, an, of, of advanced wound care products help eliminate that out of the equation. Um, also, studies have shown that the use of moisture retentive dressings um, contribute to the maintenance. Oh, wait. I didn't, I've got this study here. So the use of moisture retentive dressings have lower infection rates than those dressed with simple gauze dressings. And again, that's because of the bacterial barrier. And then the last thing about the advanced wound care products in general is the thermoregulation. Basically, most of the wounds that you guys are going to see are chronic wounds. And so chronic wounds are typically six degrees Below body, below body temperature due to fluid evaporation, that which is not improved with the use of a gauze dressing because of, it doesn't provide that normothermia. And so when you use a dressing that does, then you're going to, again, have improved healing rates. So on to the meat of the presentation. All the different dressing categories. Dressings are divided into primary dressings and secondary dressings. Your primary dressings are those dressings that are going to come into direct contact with the wound bed. Then the secondary dressings are those dressings that are going to hold the primary dressing in place and protect the wound. Um, then there's also tertiary dressings, and that's going to be when you use gauze and tape to hold a dressing in place as well, but we're really not going to talk about those. We're going to focus on the primary and the secondary and all of the ones we have listed there. So I'm going to talk about each and every one of these. So the first one is the transparent films. Transparent films are made of an adhesive polyurethane membrane. And so it's semi-permeable and provides a waterproof protection to the wound. Um, they help retain moisture and also provide a bacterial barrier. And then they also promote, which I think I have this on all of the slides, but most all of these dressings are going to promote autolytic debridement. Um, the advantages of using this type of dressing is that they, that they uh, allow for visualization, visualization of the wound, and then they don't require a secondary dressing. You can use this dressing by itself. Now, some of the disadvantages is that they are only indicated for wounds that are minimally draining to, to no drainage at all, and it's just because they don't, it doesn't have the capability to absorb the wound exudate. 
Um, they can be difficult to apply because they are adherent. And then for somebody that has very fragile skin, you don't want to use it on them because it can rip off the skin. Um, the other disadvantage is because it doesn't have an absorptive capability, sometimes as the wound drainage accumulates underneath, it can be mistaken for infection because it's that brown soupy color, and we just call that chicken soup for the wound because it's got all the body's macrophages and fibroblasts and all those things needed to heal. So then, so here are a couple examples of when to use a transparent film or, or wounds that might be appropriate. The wound on the left is a partial thickness wound. It's in that remodeling phase of healing and it just has a little open area that needs to epithelialize. And so you can use a transparent film to provide a protective waterproof barrier and allow for that re-epithelialization. Then the wound on the right, that was a second degree burn. It's pretty much close to being healed in the center area of the shin. There's a small open area. It's not really draining, just needs to re-epithelialize. So you can use that transparent film to cover and protect it and allow for that re-epithelialization. So hydrogel dressings, hydrogels are primary dressings. So they have to have a dressing to hold them in place. They are made up of water or glycerin-based gels, and they come in all different types of forms. You can get them um, amorphous in a tube. You can also get them impregnated in a gauze or in a gel sheet. The nice thing about hydrogel dressings is that they, again, facilitate the autolytic debridement, and they can be soothing and atraumatic to the wound bed. They also donate moisture or hydrate the wound bed. So some disadvantages are that you, you don't want to use it on a wound that is draining a lot because it's going to be overwhelmed by the exudate because, again, it's only minimal to dry wounds. And it can also macerate the peri wound if you don't take measures to protect that surrounding intact tissue. Um, and I can't remember the, the doctor's name before me, but he was talking about biophene, and so biophene is considered this category of dressing. So a couple of examples. The wound on the left is, we know it's able to heal, so we want to use advanced wound care products. It's up on the, the thigh, and so it's got some thickened eschar. The edges are starting to, to lift. It's a dry wound, so this is a great example of when you could use something like a hydrogel to help autolytically debride and soften that necrotic tissue and speed up the healing. Then the wound on the bottom, that is an arterial wound. It was a surgical wound. Uh, they did a fourth and fifth metatarsal amputation, so it's very, very dry. It needs some moisture to promote some healing. It also has exposed bone, and so you want to take care that the bone doesn't dry out so that you are able to heal that area. Then the upper right wound, another arterial wound, as you can see, it has exposed tendons, and so a hydrogel would be great to use for something like this because it'll help hydrate those tendons, keep the peritendon intact in order to help get that wound to heal. So also in this category are gonna be your, your polyacrylate dressings. Um, I have a picture of the name brand on there because there's only one brand out there. And so these dressings are pre-saturated with a ringer's solution. And so they have this polyacrylic core that has affinity for the protein molecules that are found in the wound debris as well, and in the necrotic tissue in the, in the wound bed. And so these molecules 
um, the protein molecules move into the core of that, that polyacrylate dressing, and then the, the ringer solution rinses into the wound, or is released into the wound, and it creates this rinsing effect. Um, it's a great dressing to use in place of a wet-to-dry dressing, and we'll, we'll get into that, into wet-to-dries in a minute. But because uh, they help debride, help rinse, and then absorb and clean that wound bed. So then gauze. Um, gauze, gauze dressings aren't really considered advanced wound care products because they're more passive dressings, but they do have their place in wound care. So gauzes are the most variable dressing out there. You can get them in all sizes, shapes, and forms. You can get them in pads. You can get them in strips. You can get them in fluffs, and you can get them sterile and non-sterile. They just come in all different types. So, oh, and they also come impregnated. You can get them impregnated with Vaseline, with um, tribismus phosphate. You can get them impregnated with iodine. So it's the most variable out there. And the main advantage of using a gauze dressing is that you can use it for mechanical debridement. And in doing mechanical debridement, that's when you do the wet to dry. And so wet to dry, I'm sure most of you probably know, is when you moisten gauze with saline, place it in the wound, let it dry, and then you pull it out of the wound and it rips out all that necrotic tissue that's in the wound. So you don't want to use it in a wound that's nicely granulated, just a wound that has necrotic tissue. Um, the other great thing about gauze is that it's permeable, although that's a bad thing because it's permeable to bacteria as well. And then it's very conformable and also a good filler. The disadvantages or like I said, it's permeable to the bacteria. It can be painful upon removal if it's allowed to dry in the wound or if that's what you're wanting to achieve. Um, and it's not necessarily cost-effective due to the frequency of change required. So here are some examples of when gauze might be appropriate. The wound on the left, and you'll see this wound again with another dressing option, it's a heavily draining infected wound, and it's 100% slough and necrotic tissue in that wound, and so this is a wound that might be appropriate for using a wet-to-dry dressing. And then the wound on the left, the top left, is a mixed etiology wound. It's in an acute care setting. Um, it's got some undermining and tunneling, but multiple physicians are seeing that wound on a daily basis, so the dressing is being changed four to five times a day. So that's when a gauze might be appropriate because of the cost-effectiveness. Then the wound on the bottom is a deep tunneling wound. It's got some necrotic tissue at the base. I believe that's on this, maybe it's ischial. Or say, yeah, I think it's on the coccyx. I, I vaguely remember this wound. But you could use a gauze with saline, saline moistened gauze in that wound on a, on a BID to TIW basis. Um, and, then, and then move on to something more appropriate later. So... The next category out there are going to be your hydrocolloids. Hydrocolloids are occlusive or semi-occlusive dressings, and they also come in various compositions. You can get them in powders. You can get them in paste. You can get them in pads. And I'm sure most of you know hydrocolloids by the name of duoderm because it's just like facial tissue. Everybody knows facial tissue as Kleenex. So hydrocolloids, um, the good thing about them are that they are self-adherent. So you just use it by itself. It can be used as a primary or a secondary dressing because you can also use topical ointments and other dressings underneath as well. Um, they provide a good bacterial barrier and also promote for autolytic debridement. Um, because you're covering that wound and keeping it protected, it can help decrease pain to the area. And they can be very cost effective when used appropriately because you only have to change them every three to seven days. So you can leave it on for a week. 
Now, they can be expensive if they aren't used appropriately, because sometimes they don't stay on the area, and so if you're having to change a hydrocolloid on a daily basis, then you should probably go with something that may be more appropriate. Um, some other disadvantages are that you, they're not indicated for infected wounds, and then you shouldn't use them over wounds that have any tunneling or sinus tracts or anything like that, or wounds that have exposed bones or tendons. So here are some examples of when it might be appropriate to use a hydrocolloid. The wound on the upper right is an incontinence-associated dermatitis wound. Partial thickness just needs to um, re-epithelialize. And so a hydrocolloid would be a great, uh, a great choice um, because you can get it in the sacral shape to stay on that area, and it's going to promote, it's going to protect it from the incontinence and from bacteria, and it's going to allow it to re-epithelialize underneath. Then the wound on the left, the upper left, that's a hospice patient that we had. And so this patient had multiple um, shallow, deep partial thickness and full thickness wounds all over. And so we wanted to use something that would stay on for a longer amount of time just to reduce the number of dressing changes and something that would protect and keep them from getting infected. So a hydrocolloid was a great choice. And then the bottom wound, that was a... Uh, a BKA, mostly healed along that surgical incision, but there's a small area left to be closed and just needed to re-epithelialize. So hydrocolloid is also a good choice to just allow it to finish healing instead of letting it scab and take longer. So the next dressing category out there are going to be your collagens. Collagens, as you guys all know, being dermatologists, are fibrous, insoluble proteins that are found in the connective tissue. And so collagen dressings are typically derived from bovine collagen. And so they encourage the deposition and the organization of collagen in the wound beds, and then thus promoting the granulation, granulation tissue proliferation. And so some of the advantages of using a collagen are going to be that they're absorbent. They can absorb a minimal to a moderate amount of dressing, and they are biodegradable. So this is a great product to use in a tunneling wound where it's not going to matter if you're unable to get that dressing out because it's going to fully absorb into that wound bed. Um, and then again, they also promote that moist wound healing and facilitate all autolytic debridement as necessary. The main disadvantage is, is that they're not indicated for full thickness burns. And then, of course, you don't want to use it on dry black wounds because you don't have any granulation tissue there to help promote proliferation. So it would be useless to use on a, on a, a, a necrotic wound. Then there's another type of collagen out there that's in the same category, and it's an oxidized regenerated cellulose collagen, ORC collagen. And this is the collagen I call collagen on steroids. It basically, and all collagens do this, but this one seems to do it more, is it binds to the MMPs in the wounds, the matrix metalloproteases. And those MMPs are what cause a wound to become chronic. And so what collagens do it distracts those MMPs, so it allows the body to produce its collagen and promote that granulation proliferation. Because basically what the MMPs, the matrix metalloproteases, do is in a chronic wound, there are overabundance of those MMPs, and those MMPs attack the body's own collagen, and so that's when you get that, that wound that plateaus and doesn't heal. And so the theory is with using a collagen dressing is it's going to convert a chronic wound into acute wound and, and promote that healing. So here are some examples of when a collagen might be appropriate. The wound up on the upper left, 
that wound was a mixed etiology. It was both venous as well as arterial. And so very painful, moderate amount of drainage. So a collagen was used to help promote the granulation tissue proliferation, as well as uh, the fact that it's um, atraumatic upon removal because you don't have to remove it. When you go to change that dressing, that collagen is gone. It's fully absorbed into that wound bed. Then the wound on the upper left is a non-healing chronic wound. It's in that, that uh, chronic inflammation phase of wound healing. And so a collagen was used to help kind of jumpstart that wound and move it on through the healing process and promote the granulation proliferation. Then the bottom wound on the left, I don't know if you can tell very well on that wound, but the muscle fascia is exposed, and sometimes that can be hard to get to granulate over. So a collagen was used in this instance to promote that granulation proliferation over that exposed fascia, and also to fill the wound because there was some depth. Then lastly, the wound on the bottom right was a diabetic wound. It's got that hyperkeratotic rim, very pale base of granulation. So again, the collagen was used to help jumpstart that wound to get it healing again um, and allowing that granulation tissue proliferation. So composite dressings. Composite dressings are similar to, and I'm sure everybody knows, uh, telfas. Only these don't stick to the wound. They're great dressings. They combine two physically different components into one dressing. Um, they have to have a bacterial barrier and then a semi or non-adherent wound uh, covering on the other side. And then the center has to be some sort of absorptive layer that isn't an alginate foam or hydrocolored or hydrogel. These are great cover dressings because um, they do have absorptive capability. Um, usually more minimal to moderate. They facilitate autolytic debridement, uh, easy application, atraumatic upon removal, um, and these can be used as a primary or secondary dressing. So a couple examples of using a composite dressing. Both of these were used with an ointment underneath. The one on the upper, the upper left was, was previously necrotic, and so it was used with a, uh, an enzymatic debrider to debride that necrotic tissue and to absorb the exudate as that, as that wound debrided. Then the one on the bottom, the bottom right was a pretty infected wound, so collagen was used with a product we talked about earlier, a, hydro, uh, a hydrogel with silver to, help as a, to, to be used as an antimicrobial to the wound to help promote that autolytic debridement because there wasn't much drainage with that one as well. So then the next dressing category are foams. Foams are made of a polyurethane-type sponge. Um, they're great. They come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes as well. They come in variable thicknesses, so they're indicated for, for minimally to very, very heavily draining wounds. Um, foams also help promote or help provide thermal insulation to the wound. And so the great thing about the, the, the foams, the use of a foam, is that they have good oops, didn't mean to do that. They have good to excellent absorption capabilities. They also have good oxygen permeability, and they're they're very atraumatic upon removal as well. And they also support the autolytic debridement. The main disadvantages are going to be that they can desiccate a wound if used inappropriately, and then you don't want to use it on a wound that you want to keep like somebody with the, the peripheral vascular disease that has a stable eschar, you don't want to use it on a wound like that. A lot of people think, oh, we'll put a foam on that and it'll provide some padding and some protection, 
but it'll also promote autolytic debridement, which you do not want to do. So you don't want to use it on dry eschar that you want to keep dry and stable. So here are a couple examples. We saw that upper right wound earlier. It's that, that mixed etiology wound that we initially used the collagen on. And once that granulation tissue, and I don't have a picture after it filled in, was nice and, and the area had filled in and all we needed was for that wound to re-epithelialize. A foam was chosen because, again, it's atraumatic upon rem removal. And um, some of the other products that might have worked all had adhesive backings, and we didn't want to use that because it's very painful for that patient. Then the bottom wound, that wound um, was also a very, very painful, painful wound. And so a foam was used because of its capability of, of not sticking to the wound bed. And it was... Uh, autolytically debriding that wound as well. And then we saw that other, the one on the top left earlier where, we, where the wet-to-dry dressing was a possibility. This is also another great wound to use a foam on. And we actually, on both of these wounds, use the product that we're going to talk about next, the calcium alginate. So the top wound, we use an enzymatic debrider to help remove that dead tissue, a calcium alginate to absorb that exudate as well as a foam because that wound was heavily draining. Then the bottom wound... That was a uh, uh, iliofemoral bypass graft that didn't go very well and became infected. And so, again, used the enzymatic debrider to get that necrotic tissue out of there as well as the calcium alginate and the foam dressing because it was also heavily draining. So calcium alginates. Calcium, calcium alginates are a derivative of, or a, a seaweed derivative, and they can absorb up to 20 times their weight in exudate. So they're indicated for very heavily draining wounds. They're great because they're biocompatible. So again, like that collagen, if you lose some of that in a wound bed, not to worry. Um, whereas if you lose some, some uh, gauze in a wound, you can create a granuloma. Um, they're very atraumatic upon removal, and they promote autolytic debridement as well, and can be very cost-effective if used appropriately. Um, because you don't want to use this on a wound that's dry or not draining that much because it, that would be, it would be a waste of the dressing. And it can desiccate the wound if you, if you use it for that. And so these dressings do require a secondary dressing to hold them in place. Um, one other disadvantage is that they, can form, they form a gel with the exudate, and so that can often be mistaken for infection. Also in this category are going to be your hydrofiber. There's only one, uh, one brand out there, so I have that, that photo up there. But So your hydrofiber is very similar to the calcium alginate, except in that they absorb a moderate amount of drainage. But instead of being a C-reed derivative, they're made of a sodium carboxymethylcellulose, the same thing that's in a duoderm or a hydrocolloid. And so these interact with, address, with the wound fluids, and they form more of a a more solid gel than the calcium alginates. So here's two examples of using a calcium alginate. We saw the other one earlier. Again, this was heavily draining, and so the calcium alginate was an appropriate product to use because it was absorbing all of that drainage. Then the bottom wound, that is a, a coccyx, uh, sacral coccyx wound, full thickness, stage four, um, heavily draining as well, and so the calcium alginate was an appropriate choice to help absorb that drainage and uh, promote the healing. And then you can see where they're expressing in the undermine area that kind of gel 
um, exudate. And so that's, again, not infection. It's just what the calcium alginate does to that wound fluid. And so what you have to do is you have to clean the wound. Because drainage or wound exudate just doesn't smell good anyway. So just because the, the exudate smells doesn't necessarily mean that the wound is infected. So you have to clean the wound thoroughly and all of that and then see if there's any odor from the wound to determine whether or not there's infection. Of course, you guys, I love dermatologists because they can do the quant cultures for me and they can tell me what's going on. Um, next we have... Oh, I'm doing plenty. I've got plenty of time. Um, so emerging technologies, I just want to touch on each of these, the antimicrobials, the enzymatics out there, the growth factors, the tissue engineering, and the, the negative pressure. So antimicrobials, there are so many different topical antimicrobials these days. This is where we're seeing dressings come out left and right with, with some sort of antimicrobial in them. So I just want to touch on each of these. Your silver, your silver dressings, um, all dressings can come with silver. The hydrogels, the collagens, the foams, the, the uh, calcium alginates, the uh, hydrocolloids, they can all come with, with, with silver, whether it be ionic silver or nanocrystalline silver. And so silvers are, silvers are a broad spectrum antimicrobial. They're effective against aerobic, anaerobic, gram-negative, gram-positive, Yeast, fungi, viruses, MRSA, they're, they're broad spectrum and, and effective against all types of infections. Um, they're also found to help reduce those MMPs, those matrix metalloproteases that I talked about earlier, in helping to convert a wound into an acute wound. Um, there's very rare resistance. We haven't seen, seen much resistance to silver, although too much silver ingested can have toxic effects. Um, one thing to remember about silver is that if you use the nanocrystalline silver, um, you, or, you know, again, this is going to be going to looking at the, the manufacturer's instructions, but some silvers react to saline because you have the cation, the cation of the silver and the chloride of the saline, and those combine, and then you have, and, and then it renders the, the silver ineffective. Then also with enzymatics, you don't want to use the silver with an enzymatic debreeder because the silver basically um, deactivates the enzyme. And so when you're using both of those products, you're not getting the benefit of either. Then we have your Codexamer iodines. This product is a, <coughs> excuse me. This type of iodine is slow releasing up to 72 hours. Um, and so it's this type of iodine that's found to be non-cytotoxic to the tissues and, and allow for, for healing. They're effective against MRSA and VRE. And Codexamer iodine can come in two different forms. You can get them in an ointment, in a tube, and then you can also get them in a pad. Then we have your Hydrofera Blue. Hydrofera Blue is a wound dressing that's constructed of a polyvinyl alcohol sponge or foam, and it has these two different types of pigment in it, the, the methylene blue and the, the, I always forget how to say that, Genetian violet. And so these two, um, these two pigments are found to be effective against MRSA and VRE, as well as a variety of other different microorganisms, but they're just not indicated for third-degree burns. 
So then you have your PHMB, your polyhexamethylene biguanide. This material is, or this antimicrobial you can find in gauzes as well as in foams, um, basic, and as, as well as biosynthesized cellulose. And so they're effective against MRSA, E. coli, candida, and then um, a lot of studies have been done using this uh, PHMB impregnated gauzes for surgical side infections in, in acute care, and I found that it's reduced the number of uh, the amount of infections. Then there's honey. We're seeing a lot more honey in dressings. Used to you could just buy the Manuka honey in the tube, um, but now you can find it in alginates as well as in gauzes and pads and things like that. And so honey has been around for a long time, but you can't just go out and buy or have a, have a patient go out and buy a tube of honey or a, a jar of honey at the grocery store because it's not that type of honey. It has to be the, um, sorry, it, the, the honey from New Zealand, and I have it written down, I always forget, Leptospermum honey. Um, and it, honey has been found to have an osmotic effect to decrease the moisture content as well as um, its acid, its acid base, and so it, honey actually has hydrogen peroxide in, in it. So, <clears throat> so enzymatics. There used to be quite a few different enzymatics out there, but now there's only one, so that's why I have the brand on there. It's a collagenase. Um, used to we had a bunch of papinuria, but the FDA um, took those off the shelf. Um, you can still find them some places, but you sh it shouldn't be used because it's no longer FDA approved. So collagenase is derived from the fermentation of the clostridium histolyticum. I'm not... I don't, I'm not very good at saying all those fancy words. <laughs> Collagenase basically is an enzymatic debrider. It has enzymes that digest the denatured collagen in the necrotic tissue. So it doesn't affect the collagen in the granulation tissue. So it is selective. It just um, enzymatically debrides the denatured collagen in the necrotic tissue. And so thus it allows for the granulation to proceed and the reepithelialization to occur. Again, as I would mentioned with the silver products, collagenase you do not want to use with any product containing silver. Next are your growth factors. Again, there's only one synthetic growth factor out there, and that's your Regranex. Um, basically, it's, a, its activity is similar to the endogenous platelet-derived growth factor. Um, it promotes the recruitment and the proliferation of the chemotactic cells including the monocytes and the fibroblasts um, that are necessary for the stimulation of the granulation proliferation and to, to help stimulate the wound healing process. It's only FDA approved for neuropathic ulcers, and it can be very, very expensive. I think it's still about $1,000 a tube. So it's something that we don't see a whole lot of. Um, then there are, um, this is a new uh, uh, emerging technology in wound care is um, the autologous plate platelet gels and grafts. We're seeing more and more of this. Um, there used to be only two companies that did this, and now I don't know how many there are. It's popping up all over. And so this, is, this allows for multiple growth factors formulations. Basically, they take the platelet-enhanced uh, plasma concentrate from the patient and then mix it with a formulation of reagents that transform it into a type of uh, semi-solid graft that is then placed into the wound bed. And so this comes from the patient themselves. Um, we see it a lot with venous ulcers as well as with uh, a lot with diabetic wounds. And so it's biologically active and it delivers growth factors, your cytokines, your chemokines, 
um, that's required for cellular growth and the formation of, of new tissue. So we're seeing it a lot with uh, chronic wounds to help get those wounds healing and going. Then there's tissue engineering. This is another avenue in wound care that we're seeing more and more and more research. I mean, they've been researching this for, for 20 years. And uh, the bioengineered skin substitutes have emerged originally, or were created originally for, um, to replace the autographs, the allografts, as well as the xenografts. But now we're seeing them used more and more in venous leg ulcers as well as diabetic wounds. And so you can get them as living skin equivalents which is on the upper right, or as cultured epidermal autographs, which is the bottom. I mean, for those two, there's all kinds of different brands out there nowadays. And then also as dermal templates, which is on the left. So negative pressure. There are all types of modalities out there to promote wound healing, but negative pressure is really the only one out there that's actually a, a wound dressing. As a physical therapist, um, we've, I've done a lot of ultrasound and, and uh, e-stim and things like that, and there are tons of products out there to help, help uh, promote wound healing. But so negative pressure is the only one that's really like a dressing. And so what it does is you have a vacuum source that creates a subatmospheric pressure to the wound bed, and it creates these mechanical forces um, to to create this environment that's going to promote wound healing. And so the two mechanical forces are going to be your microstrain and your macrostrain. So with the microstrain, you have the reduction in the edema in the wound, and then you have the promotion of the prolifer proliferation of granulation tissue throughout the wound. And with the macrostrain, that's where it's drawing those wound edges together. It's uh, providing uh, the, or it's, uh, what am I thinking? It, you, what am I thinking? Oh, it, it also removes, that's, that's what's removing that exudate from the tissues. And there's also tons and tons of, used to there was only KCI because they had patented the wound back, and now we're seeing tons of other devices out there, so you have tons of different options. I've seen a wound back where it's about the size of this mic, and it just, the patient wears it, and it's got the tube that goes down and the, the foam that, uh, that goes into the wound, so you can get them all different sizes. It's, it's amazing what they've come out with. So this is a great little schematic showing all the different dressings that we talked about um, with the amount of drainage that they absorb. So you have your transparent films that don't absorb anything, all the way to those calcium alginates that absorb up to 20 times its weight <coughs> in uh, fluids. And so I went really, really fast. <laughs> so to summarize um, all the different dressing selections, again, you need to think, you need to ask yourself, what is it that you want the dressing to do? Do you want it to, you know, number one, you want it to provide a moist wound environment. So do you want the dressing to absorb the wound fluid or do you want it to add moisture to the wound? So that, again, is going to help you kind of get an idea of what you want to select. And then you want to, is it infected? Is it, uh, does it need an antimicrobial? Um, then you want to think about, <coughs> oops, the type of tissues that are present. Um, if there's granulation tissue present, then you want, to you want to promote that granulation proliferation. You want to maintain that moist environment. You want to promote healing. If it's necrotic tissue, like I said, you want to debride that. So choose a product that's going to help autolytically debride it or mechanically debride it or enzymatically debride it. Um, then you, it, it, does the patient have pain? You want to pick something that's atraumatic upon removal. Um, what's the quality of the peri wound? I love the peri wound of the wound because it can tell you a lot about what's actually going on. So you want to protect that. Um, 
And then what are the, the, the patient or the family's wishes? You know, is your goal, you want to think about the goals. Is your goal going to be to heal the wound? Is it going to be to prepare the wound for that secondary intention closure? Or is it going to keep the wound clean and dry and stable and prevent it from infection? So that's it. Sorry, I didn't mean to fly through it like that. The other day I did this presentation and it took me an hour and a half, so I was going really fast. And I wanted you to have all this material because there's a lot of material in there. So I apologize for going through it so fast. Do you guys have any questions? Oh, and one thing is I, I do have a list of references. And if you're unsure about all the dressings out there and what to choose and when, the top reference, Kathy Thomas Heth, she has a fantastic book out there that has each of the categories that we just went over and all the different types and brands of dressings out there. How do you feel about the Whirlpool therapy for debridement or wound? How do I feel about it? Yeah. It has its place. As being a physical therapist, I used to do a ton of, um, of uh, Whirlpool therapy. Um, I don't see it used as much because it's contraindicated for so many types of wounds. You don't want to use it for your arterial wounds. You don't want to use it for your venous wounds. It's basically a form of mechanical debridement. So you want to, you know, it's indicated for wounds that have a lot of necrotic tissue or slough that you want to mechanically debride. But other than that, it really doesn't have a place anymore. I just have a quick comment for my colleagues anyway. The Regranix you mentioned, uh -huh. um, which is ultra expensive, um, can be covered and works great for ulcerated infantile hemangiomas, especially in the genital area. And um, even though it's not FDA approved, I've gotten coverage for it. And it's one of the few things that'll work for those really resistant ones. So it has its place too. So and Regranix does have an indigent really well. program. So you can get it for half the cost, depending on, on um, on the patient and their their status. My last there. patient complained more about the cost of the saline to cover it than the actual medication by the time she had <laughs> covered. So truly, I mean, it, it, it works and it has its place. So. I have a question about uh, people who are allergic uh, to the adhesives. We have a lot of contact uh -huh. dermatitis. Is there mm -hmm. any dressings you recommend for people who have significant contact dermatitis from adhesive? You just have to be very selective about, I mean, there are so many different kinds and types of tapes out there. There's a tape, it's a, it's, it's a, a pink tape, and it has a, a calamine in it that might be effective. Um, so you'd want to choose a dressing that doesn't, well, and it depends on where, where the wound is. If it's somewhere on the leg or the arm, that's where you're going to use a tertiary dressing and use something like a Curlex or a stretch gauze and don't put any tape on the skin. Yeah. Um, Composite, I haven't seen a lot of allergies to composites, so that would be something to use. I have seen allergies to foams, to the polyurethane and the foam. Um, oftentimes you can use a, like a, well, if, you could use like a Vaseline gauze or something to kind of hold it in place underneath, and, but I've seen allergies to that. So it just, it's just playing with the different products out there because everybody's different. One more quick question about the autologous um, uh -huh. mode that you use. Um, does that come in a kit that you can do in, uh, in the hospital, or do you have to send out the patient's plasma for them to? It depends on the company that you use. Some companies will rent you um, that centrifuge that you use and, and, and educate you on how to do that. So it just, there, I don't know, I don't know if, if I had the reference of, to the company. I think one of the companies 
we'll rent you the material so you can do it in the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about doing it in an actual clinic, otherwise you'd ship it out. Yeah, um, we're, we're in an academic setting, so the hospital's right there. But, okay, so, so yeah, the hospital should be able to, 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 to find a company that'll set them up and, and educate them on how to do it themselves. I imagine that you are in a hospital setting. I'm just wondering how most of these dressings are dispensed. Uh, most of us are, you know. Actually, I'm in the long-term care setting these days. Okay. So um, it, it just depends. Uh, usually a lot of pharmacies will carry all of the, a, a lot of the dressings. Um, you can write, a, it, it depends on the pharmacies. It, it, it varies. Sometimes you can write a prescription for the different dressings, and then the pharmacies, a lot of the pharmacies can get that in and provide it to the patient. Um, then they can go out and purchase them from just normal DME companies. A lot of DME companies carry the different categories because they're not really, they don't require a prescription. All of these products, except for the Santal um, and the Regranex require a prescription, or those are the only two that require a prescription. Everything else you can just buy off the shelf. So a lot of pharmacies will carry them. Um, I've seen some at grocery stores. Um, it, it just varies. Um, and then there are a lot of companies out there that will do the billing for them um, because Medicare will pay for all of those products when used appropriately. Um, and so there, there are outside companies that you can contact that will uh, bill the insurance and ship them to the, the patient.